I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, I spend the night going drink for drink with Johnny Depp on the Upper East Side and end up foisting that one Proclaimer song on the world. Sorry about that. I've just been tased by Johnny Depp's taser. Not by Johnny Depp, though, which would be a lot cooler. Sadly, I consort with the kind of people who would tase me with Johnny Depp's taser at a moment's notice simply because I showed it to them and let them hold it, and that's not cool at all. My first cousin, Winona Ryder, Noni to me, is engaged to be married to the Depper, and this has afforded me a weird kind of close access to Johnny, a rising star who's well on the cusp of epic hugeness. In the spring of 1990, he's already been a victim of Freddy Krueger, a certified TV star, a bona fide teen idol, and all-around righteous dude. We first met a year ago at a sparsely attended daytime showing of Crybaby, his first starring role at the Paramount Theater on Columbus Circle. No one recognized him, or Noni for that matter. I'm a huge John Waters fan, given to reciting lengthy stretches of dialogue from female trouble and desperate living, and proud of my Balmer inflections. Mr. Weinberger, Don Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich right out in class, and she's been passing notes. I sincerely wanted to like Crybaby more, but as a send-up of teen exploitation movies, it was pure pastiche and not nearly outrageous enough for me. You don't own me, Baldwin. I have the right to hear Crybaby sing. Don't get all worked up, honey. The punk got what he deserved. I kept this to myself. Anyway, Johnny wasn't interested in doing a post-mortem. After the screening, in the cab with Noni and Amanda, my secret girlfriend, he turns to me and initiates a game of Would You Rather. So, Skysby, he says employing the nickname Noni calls me and I call her. Would you rather be tossed into a swimming pool full of greased, naked epileptics on ecstasy, or snort a line of Larry King's ear hair? Am I clothed or unclothed? You wear a small neoprene loincloth. Well, that tips it. I'm going in the pool. Definitely. Eventually, he brings up a recent tape I'd made for Noni, which they'd been listening to on repeat. He says he loves two songs, especially. The one that goes, this is a love song for John and Leisha's mother, he whispers in. Ah, Not Given Lightly by Chris Knox. I should give credit to Amanda here. I really should. She was the one who hipped me to Chris Knox. But she and Noni are having their own conversation, and since Depp is so impressed with my musical taste, I see no point in dispelling the notion. The other song he mentions is Julian Cope's China Doll, one I got from my brother. This one we talk about. Julian Cope led the British neo-psychedelic post-punk outfit The Teardrop Explodes and earned a reputation for copious LSD intake. short-lived band had hits in the UK but was not well-known stateside. 
Julian cleaned up his act a bit during the latter part of the decade, and My Nation Underground, his 1988 LP, contained several odes to smittenness delivered in a courtly baritone not far from Scott Walker. Just the thing to express the yearnings of my unfulfilled heart. I love Julian all the more because my brother actually knows him. They'd spend afternoons at Johnny's flat, that's my brother, skinning up joints of cheap commercial pot, settling in for the slow stoning, in the words of Copy. During these sessions, Julian's encyclopedic knowledge of Druidic history, German motoric music of the 70s, and a host of other disparate subjects left my brother dumbstruck. Depp is hip to many things, but not to cope, and he's fallen hard. And I can see why. China Doll is like a four-minute musical miniature starring Johnny as the brooding romantic and Noni as the ingenue. For a while, it's their song. And in a way, it never stopped being their song. Two decades later, Johnny left a message of himself singing China Doll on Noni's answering machine. Having a hand in crafting the soundtrack of a famous couple's romance strikes me as validation for my accumulated knowledge and taste. Having the wherewithal to turn Johnny Depp onto new tunes confirms that my lifelong fascination with pop music has given me a rarefied knowledge bordering on expertise. I put a great deal of care into the follow-up mix, which I send to them in Florida, where they're filming Edward Scissorhands. It includes the Lemonheads, The Clean, Robin Hitchcock, XTC, and the confoundingly catchy I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. When I see them again in August, at a backyard party thrown by my parents for my newly married brother and his wife, I have a fresh tape in hand. They arrive in their limo, and Mom's in the driveway, moving patio furniture out of the garage to bring into the backyard for the party. Can I help? Johnny asks. Sure, Mom says. Well, how do you like that? You just got here, and already we're putting you to work. Oh, that's okay, he says. We're family. Depp, dressed conservatively in a crisp white shirt and black trousers, talks jazz with Dad and Salinger with Mom, old Hollywood with my grandmother. He charms the pants off everybody. They give me a lift back into the city, and we spin the new tape in the limo. This tape, tape three, 
is heavy on London's darkly jangling The House of Love, whose lead singer, Guy Chadwick, has the dourest cheekbones in creation. Johnny and Oni have just moved into a pre-war loft on Duane Street in Tribeca, which is fantastic, because now I'll be able to see them more and we can hang out in New York together. I've just sorted out my own tenuous living arrangements after three consecutive apartment situations that suddenly went south for a cornucopia of reasons. Thank the New Testament God that Amanda's church friend has a place on West 10th that she's not occupying, which I can afford on my meager savings and which doesn't even require a security deposit. I'm lucky as hell to have an apartment of my own in New York for $3.50 a month. That's what I keep telling myself. Located on the fifth floor of a narrow building in the West Village, 5RW is 150 square feet, max. The front door is secured with what's called a police lock, a steel pole that runs diagonally from the lock fixture to a groove in the slanted, pitted floor. Ninety years ago, when the building was constructed, people lived in fear of losing their possessions and were willing to barricade themselves behind heavy-duty locks of all stripes, whatever worked. And these ones, produced by the Fox Police Lock Company on West 21st Street, worked very well indeed, a fact confirmed by firefighters who testified to the considerable effort required to bash through them in emergency situations. The basic human necessities greet you as you enter the residence. A claw-footed bathtub, topped by a plank of wood that supports a dish rack, and a functional gas stove that might have served up dinner on the night Warren G. Harding was elected. In a space adjoining the eating-bathing zone, there's room for my futon to unfold, beyond which south-facing windows, obstructed by thick security gating, admit a diffuse light. On the northern end, Wedged in a crevice-like space is a commode that's operated by a pole chain mechanism attached to the ceiling. Beyond it, a dusty bead curtain demarcates a darkened no-go zone cluttered with items you'd find on a neglected highway shoulder. But it's the steel pole, more than anything else, that constantly reminds me I'm occupying someone else's space and I'm not where I'm supposed to be. After four years of teaching, the last two spent earning a master's degree in education I'm done with it. The prospect of returning to the classroom in September with someone other than my wonderful Amanda as my assistant fills me with dread. Frankly, so does the thought of another year of pretzels and apple juice, rain boots, routines, rituals, and rest time. I can no longer sustain the belief that teaching is so righteous a vocation that there's no need to explore other, potentially more lucrative paths. In London, seeing all of my brother's young, vibrant friends doing all kinds of exciting, media-centric work got me thinking, why not me? So when the school offered me a contract for next fall, I declined. N not that I have anything set up, but I'll land on my feet. Months later, an article in the New York Times informs me that Noni and Johnny have flown the coop. I haven't seen them since August, but I figured they were just busy doing movie star stuff. Speaking from a newly bought, unfurnished bungalow in LA, Noni explains the failure of the New York stint. I couldn't deal with the fact that if I got hungry at night, I couldn't go anywhere because of the crime factor. Why live that way by choice? And I was too far away from my parents. Now, the part about being away from her folks rang true, but I don't think crime was really a factor. She's a California girl at heart, and the city just makes her uptight. 
it wasn't a good fit. Still, I'm a little blindsided by the news, and a little miffed to have to find out about it just like the rest of the plebes. You're gone? I said, when I finally got her on the phone some weeks later. Yeah, it just didn't work out. Sorry, Skysby, I should have said something. We were never even really there. We never even unpacked. Hmm. What did you do about the apartment? Oh. Do you want it? Well, yeah. I, I mean, if you're not using it. No, that's fine. Seriously? A FedEx package arrived a few weeks later. Dear David, as promised, here are the keys to the apartment. 3N, 134 Duane Street, front door, elevator, and fire escape. Can't find the mailbox key. Or the back door. Sorry. Use the place any way you like. However, there are certain restrictions. No crowing at sunrise. No peeing on the floors. No farm animals of any sort, unless marriage is on the horizon. No farting. No exceptions. No launching of Scud missiles. No reading of pornography. Pictures only. No Kuwaiti disco parties. And that's all. Anyway, have a good. Think of us often, especially when steaming or taking a dump. Thanks for the tape. See you then. All our love. Johnny and Noni. Now this is a weird kind of luxury. Everyone I know and love is somewhere between Houston and 14th Street, so having the keys to a massive loft in Tribeca is a thrill, but it's just not easy to take advantage of. Especially since I finally landed a job at Disney in the children's publishing arm, which is just a stone's throw from my West 10th Street matchbox. And I find the whole thing slightly intimidating. I have no legal right to have access to this pricey residence, but I'd be a fool not to check it out. To Noni and Johnny, it's no big deal. Why should it be for me? Still, weeks go by before I make it down to Duane Street. Located on the third floor of a five-story building, accessible by private elevator, the loft is vast, with 12.5-foot ceilings, wall-sized windows, elegant Corinthian columns, and gorgeously weathered floors. It's devoid of furniture, save for a king-sized bed, a bureau, and a vintage salon chair hairdryer. There's some fossilized laundry in the washer and a balled-up trench coat on top of the dryer. I pace around the digs as dust comes on, but there's nothing to do here. It's just big, beautiful, and empty. I don't stay long, but I come away with the realization that the only way to take full advantage of the Duane Street loft is to throw a party. Adhering to house rules, it's not a Kuwaiti disco party, and peeing on the floors is kept to a minimum. My one regret is I never managed to try out the steam shower, because soon after the shindig, the landlord figured out that his incandescent tenants had jumped coasts and wanted the keys back pronto. The job at Disney that I was so excited about turns out to be Dolesville, but urged on by my cool connections, I make a few moves. I wangle a lunch meeting at Coffee Shop, the hip eatery on Union Square West, with the head of the whole publishing operation, Michael Linton, who now runs Sony Pictures. Michael really liked my prototype for an advice column called Ask Goofy, and sent an email to Disney head honcho Michael Eisner touting Ask Goofy for a syndicated national column. I figured I had finally found my niche. At some point I mentioned to Linton that my cousin was Winona Ryder, and he came up with a project based on a smart, quirky YA novel called The Diary of Adrian Mole. I brought it up with her, 
and she didn't exactly say no. But eventually she balked when Linton said she would have to actually contribute some writing to the project. Well, she was an actor, not a writer. She sure didn't need a book deal after Heather's. I'm sorry. Well, not only was the diary project a bust, so was Ask Goofy. The Magic Kingdom kingpins passed on it, saying they didn't want to dilute his overall value by spreading him too thin. <laughs> Meanwhile, the work I was hired to do ended up being a lot of filing and typing, and my boss, who kept a framed picture of Minnie Mouse on her desk, <laughs> resented me hobnobbing with her boss. It was my good fortune that Disney had just branched out into grown-up publishing, and the company's new imprint, Hyperion, was keen to break into non-Disney realms. Just as Touchstone Pictures brought Disney a share of the R-rated movie market, Hyperion would do the same for Disney as a book publisher. And what better way to signal that this wasn't your old man's Disney than to sign Lou Reed? Which is how I was able to wangle a pair of tickets to hear Lou Reed. From, between thought and expression, selected lyrics of Lou Reed, a handsome hardcover edition published by Hyperion in the fall of 1991. Discussing his work in a concurrent interview, Lou likened a certain kind of pop song, where the lyrics can't bear scrutiny without the music, to novelties, whereas he said his aim was to write lyrics that could be appreciated on their own. Thus, to promote the book, Lou agreed to do a small author's tour, exclusively in non-rock settings. He would simply stand at a lectern and read his lyrics out loud. No guitars, no bass, no laughing. Well, Johnny Depp's a big fan of Lou Reed and the New York School of Rock, the Velvets and Patti Smith and the Ramones. I pass him an invite through Noni, and he's into it. The event takes place in the theater of the New York Society of Ethical Culture on Central Park West. We agree to meet on the steps, and he shows up right on time. Lou gets a rock star greeting when he appears on stage and takes his place behind a podium, reading glasses at the ready. In a decade or so, people will start referring to writers as rock stars. In the meantime, here's Lou, ten years ahead of his time once again. I'll be your mirror. Reflect what you are, in case you don't know. Is his opening benediction. Delivered in his dour deadpan New York ease, his words are a balm to the soul of the assembled. Some of the rapture wears off as we enter the realm of shiny, shiny leather and lying underneath the bottle and make our way toward a closing series of death songs from his latest, Magic and Lost, all without the release of rock and roll. When it's done, despite all the computations, I'm actually glad to be back in the crisp November night with Johnny. So, where to, Skysby? he says, lighting up. Maybe we should toast Lou with a drink or three. He nods, exhaling smoke. Yeah, he says in that quiet purr of his. We should do that. We amble at an easy pace, turning east onto 59th and proceeding lackadaisically toward our destination, the Mark Hotel on 77th and Madison, where Johnny is staying under the name Mr. Stench. His hair is cut short and nondescript for the Arrowtooth Waltz, his current oddball movie project, which is kind of in traction while the director sorts out some psychological issues. Frankly, it puzzles me that he's involved in something so outside the mainstream when he's such a blazing hot commodity. Since he plays a regular Joe in it, he looks pretty nondescript for Johnny Depp. Handsome as hell, to be sure, but not obviously a movie star. 
Having learned in Premiere Magazine that Johnny and Iggy Pop had become friends while filming Crybaby, I bring up how much I dug Brick by Brick, Iggy's most recent release. You know the song Butt Town? The cops are well groomed with muscle physiques in Butt Town. I recite, doing my best, Iggy. Iggy wrote that song about my butt. Seriously? He assures me that it's true, that somewhere in the course of hanging out in Texas with Iggy Pop and some friends during a debauched weekend of Hunter S. Thompson-grade shenanigans, Iggy had written Butt Town, or been inspired to write it, in homage to the butt of Depp. He tells me not as a brag, but because he knows I'll appreciate this piece of info. I resolve to take a gander at Johnny's butt at the next opportune moment, just in a research kind of way. Do you know that song, I'm a Conservative? Don't know that one. One of my favorite songs by Iggy. I can't remember what record it's on, but it's like... Hey, look me over, lend me an ear. I'm a conservative. I like the small black marks on my hand. I'm a conservative. You need to track that one down, Skysby. Hell yeah. I bum a cigarette, and Johnny lights me up with a gassy old-school Zippo with a big flame. Smoking with Johnny Depp is fun. So what's Faye Dunaway like to work with? I fell in love with her in Bonnie and Clyde. Well, you could say she's a piece of work, he says, and starts to chuckle. I'm all ears. All right. Check it out. One night, we're filming a night scene, and we're up in Alaska, so it's snowy. It's cold. We're running through the snow, and suddenly Faye yells, Stop. And we all stop. We're out in the freezing cold, just standing still, shivering. Turns out Faye wears some kind of, uh, I guess you'd call it a prosthetic device? In her mouth? You know, something to do with her bone structure? Like, I don't know, something to keep it all looking intact, I guess? Well, the thing must have popped out while she was running. So there we all are. Me, Jerry Lewis, the director, who's going mental, and the whole crew. All of us on our hands and knees in the snow, just searching for this... thing. He tells me about the movie's final scene, in which he and Jerry Lewis perform the dialogue using their own Inuit-sounding gibberish. Johnny's about to favor me with a few choice words when we reach the Mark, an ultra-luxury hotel on New York's Upper East Side. Johnny leads the way into the bar lounge, which is slightly sunken from lobby level, a soft-edged, red-lit pleasure grotto where each step we take is cushioned by high-value textiles. Johnny is right at home in five-star hotels. In a few years, he'll be wrecking them. We take a banquette away from the bar, and a hotel employee makes a gentle approach and offers Johnny a portable phone. Uh, Mr. Stench, if you don't mind, someone in the lounge wishes to speak with you? Johnny nods, takes the phone, raises it to his ear. He listens patiently, offering a murmur of assent here and there. Well, that would all depend, he says finally. On what? On how much your mother would enjoy being tied up and having me take a shit on her, he says, in that quiet purr of his. Then, placing a hand over the mouthpiece, Champagne? The phone is retrieved. Johnny orders a bottle of the good stuff, and we watch in amusement as an older couple sways into view. They're obviously from out of town, and drunk, as if after a day of imbibing free drinks at a casino. Sprawled over a C-shaped leather and animal print banquette, She's in a boxy, iridescent dress and matching high heels. He's in a light-colored sports jacket, tie-loosened, 
slightly disheveled behind Vegas shades. A passing server takes their drink order and they start to make out. This bit of theater of the absurd comes as a welcome flip side to Lou Reed's noir recitations, and it gives me the chance to reprise a riff I'd tossed out on the way over. Waist deep and big muddy, I say, referring to a protest song made famous by Pete Seeger that some say helped end the war in Vietnam, but which I am leveraging solely for its vague, puerile sexual innuendo. We were waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. Repeating the line in a mirthful whisper, Depp sees some humor in it, and we laugh and drink some more. When we look up again, the couple has passed out. Him, knees akimbo, and jaw agape. She with one leg crossed at the knee, a dangling high heel refracting the beam from a sleek overhead spotlight. Emboldened by champagne and my guide's magnetic pull, I rise with the men's room in mind and an idea forms. As I pass the passed out woman, I lower my torso with stealth and swipe the giant Christmas ornament that is her shoe without disturbing the lady's slumber or calling attention to myself. Johnny looks up when I say his name and I toss him the shoe. Depp's penchant for pranks will one day be documented in think pieces commemorating the 20th anniversary of What's Eating Gilbert Grape, during the filming of which he coerced young Leonardo DiCaprio into sniffing a rancid pickled egg. But Johnny's delight in mischief at the expense of others is not yet an established part of his persona. However, he's shared with me a few stories of his childhood, of growing up dodging ashtrays and shoes thrown in anger, and as I pee on a urinal wrought from Carrara marble, I'm confident he'll put it to good use. Re-entering the lounge, I spot the shoe immediately, hung by the heel from a spoke on a minimalist chandelier. Later, we hang out in his suite with a Florida buddy from Johnny's pre-fame days, passing around an acoustic guitar. I play a few feeble runs, then hand it over to Johnny. Shirtless, wasp-waisted, cigarette dangling, arm emblazoned Winona forever, he takes a turn and the bastard lays down some ace-sounding blues licks. It's a moment many around the world would give their eye teeth to witness. Before I go, I give Johnny the tape I promised him. 90 notorious minutes of surreptitious recordings, including Orson Welles' fish stick ad, because Findus freeze the card at sea and then add a crumb crisp, crumb crisp coating. Uh, that's tough, crumb crisp coating. Famed jazz drummer Buddy Rich abusing his band members. Can't play shit. The Trogs profanely fretting over the follow-up to Wild Thing. One, two, uh, one, two, three, four. You're doing it fucking wrong. Jerry Lewis savagely toying with an elderly fan. Evelyn Taylor. T-A-Y-L-O-R is the last name. T-A-Y-L-O-R. And the profanity-rich Red's Bar series of prank calls immortalized obliquely on The Simpsons. Hello? Hello, Red? Yeah. Is Stewie there? Who? Stu. What's Stu? Pit. Pit. P-E-I-T. Then, a tad reluctantly, 
Resisting the urge to ask if he's up for stealing another shoe, I say goodnight. In the cab on the way back downtown, my head lolls and a goofy grin takes over as I replay the past few hours. I don't want any of this conversational gold to lose its luster. Then I'm on to champagne fantasies. Me and Johnny catching Tin Machine next month at the Marquee. The two of us knocking around the village, talking Kerouac and playing Would You Rather. Me and Johnny with guitars, him saying, Actually, Skysby, you're not bad at all. Show me that lick you just did. That weekend, I come across a Spanish import copy of Iggy Pop's Soldier, the one with I'm a Conservative on it, in a now long gone East Village record store. It costs me more than I like to pay for a record, but I want to know Soldier the next time I see Johnny. Which turns out to be never again. It takes a while for this to become apparent, of course. When Benny and June comes out in early 93 and makes stars out of the Proclaimers and 500 Miles, I immediately think of tape number two and I'm convinced that these Scottish gits owe their now huge career to me. By then it's clear that Johnny and Noni are through. I'm bummed. I'm bummed I can't give Johnny a call and confirm whether he's passed on this song to Mary Stuart Masterson, the reason it ended up in the movie. My mom is bummed because she liked Johnny. She would miss their talks. At least I had a souvenir to remember him by, though. His trench coat which was army green, belted at the waist, and made of dense, weather-averse material. It had an amazing weight to it, which I attributed to the densely woven material until I stumbled on the taser wedged deep in an inside pocket. The battery still worked. As I headed over to the telephone bar, Johnny's taser in my trench coat pocket, I imagined the Depper being accosted by the Baseball Furies gang from the Warriors and unleashing the power of Edison on their uncomprehending jawlines. After a few pints, I break out the taser and show it to one of the regulars, a guy named Pete. But then they're all named Pete. Thus, as hinted at earlier, I set into motion the world's most naive tase. Once the shock wears off, I can't suppress a rueful smile at the memory of the talented Mr. Stench. It was like we were in a movie. Why would anybody want to shock somebody else? I mean, what is the kick in that? I mean, I mean... Next up, I get the backstage treatment with the world's biggest band. It sure beats paying retail. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.